to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting live on August 29th from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Hurricane Adalia is bearing down on Florida, and later on in the show, we're going to get an update with a meteorologist from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. We're going to begin the show, though, looking at Saturday's mass shooting in Jacksonville and how easy access to guns in the U.S. is fueling hate crimes. I'm going to read here from the AP for a sentence or two about what happened in Jacksonville. Authorities say a white man wearing a mask and brandishing a weapon with a swastika emblazoned on it fatally shot three black people in Jacksonville in a racist attack. The assailant opened fire Saturday at a Dollar General store in a predominantly black neighborhood, leaving two men and one woman dead. The gunman then killed himself. Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters says the crime was clearly motivated by racial hatred, saying the shooter hated black people and the shooter had tried to gain access to a historically black college. The group Giffords put out a report called How America's Gun Laws Fuel Armed Hate. And we're going to talk about those connections with our guests. Giffords Research Director Kelly Drain. So welcome to Tuesday Cafe, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that you could come on to talk about this important topic and a very timely discussion that for some reason we as a society have been putting off and, and not really taking very seriously, it seems. So uh, we'll, we'll try to take it seriously here and maybe that will be the beginning of a, a serious discussion that can um, save some lives. So let's begin with what's your group? What is Gifford's? Yes, so Giffords is a national nonprofit organization founded by the former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Um, As some people may remember, in 2011, she was shot at a constituent event in Arizona. And then after the Sandy Hook shooting, she founded an organization that works to reduce gun violence in America. So we as an organization study the causes and the costs of gun violence we educate the public about gun safety solutions and we share our expertise with policymakers nationwide um, to promote efforts to prevent gun violence and this report that i'm referring to is called how america's gun laws fuel armed hate and we're going to talk about some of the solutions in just a bit but let's lay out uh, the issues for uh, for our listeners so what is the connection between hate crimes and gun laws yeah that's a great question so one is that we know that a large percentage of um mass shootings and and gun violence in general is connected or has some connection to hate. Um, In in fact, in this country, there are 10,300 firearm hate crimes each year. Um, So that's, you know, 28 per day. Um, And we also know that the risk factors behind um, that that motivate people to have these hate-filled ideologies also are connected to an increased risk of other forms of violence. So it's really critical that our laws are properly addressing this nexus between hate and violence. And so how difficult is it for someone who has committed hate crimes already to be able to access firearms? Yeah, so under federal law, um, if it's if you commit a, um, a 
a felony hate crime, um, you know, a crime that raises to to the level of a felony, usually that's a crime that's punishable by more than one year in jail. You would be prohibited under federal law. But we know that many hate crimes um, are prosecuted as misdemeanor hate crimes. And federal law does not prohibit um, people convicted of misdemeanor hate crimes, which can still be incredibly violent, um, have tremendous, cause tremendous pain for victims. Um, those are not um, prohibiting events and people convicted of those crimes um, at the misdemeanor level can still access firearms. Um, some states have taken action to close that loophole, but there are still, you know, the vast majority of, or the, I should say the majority of states that have not addressed that, um, that loophole in our laws. Let's talk about some of the recommendations that you have for states and for the federal government that they could enact that would protect Americans from armed hate. We'll start with universal background checks to ensure that people purchasing firearms are eligible to possess them. What would that entail? Yeah, so universal background checks are the foundational policy that you know we really need in this country. Under current federal law, you are required to undergo a background check if you buy your gun from what we call a federally licensed dealer. So if you go to um, you know a gun store, a brick and mortar location to buy your gun, um, you will undergo a background check. They're very quick. Most of them make an immediate determination and are completed within 90 seconds. Um, but this is a really critical foundation for every type of gun law that we have in this country, because if we're if we're creating categories um, of eligibility, if we're saying that certain people aren't eligible, but we're not actually screening them, then um, we're really only doing half of the puzzle here. Um, so it is really critical that we have universal background check laws and studies show that those laws are associated um, with lower rates of violence and um and also lower rates of gun trafficking, which fuels a lot of our country's gun violence epidemic. Do we have an idea of how popular that is or unpopular, if whether Americans support or don't support background checks? Yeah, so this is, you know, again, one of the reasons that it is a, a priority policy is because it is incredibly popular with the American public. I think um, the American public kind of understands that this policy just makes sense that, um, you know, we get background checks to to have certain kinds of jobs. Um, and so it makes sense that to, to let people have a, a deadly weapon, we would, you know, make sure that they don't have any um, prohibiting criteria. And polling data that we see nationally and at the state level shows that 90% of Americans support these policies with high support among Democrats, Republicans, gun owners, non-gun owners. Um, so it really is an incredibly popular policy among the public, but um, has not gotten the same traction among policymakers. Our guest is Kelly Drain, Research Director with Giffords, and we're talking about the connection between hate crimes and gun laws. And just a reminder to people that later on in the show, we will get the latest about Hurricane Adalia. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I want to continue to ask about some solutions from, that Giffords is putting forward, some sort of policy solutions. One is that military-style weapons and large-capacity magazine regulations, uh, that if, if there are... Um, regulations that would more thoroughly regulate civilian access to these military style weapons. What difference would that make in, in uh, safety in the U.S.? 
Yeah, so military-style weapons, um, like the weapon used in the Jacksonville shooting, and then large-capacity magazines, they significantly increase the lethality of shootings, um, particularly these mass shootings that um, we are seeing, you know, horrible accounts of um, almost weekly. Um, you know, the, when a, when people have access to a military-style weapon, they can fire bullets more quickly. Um, Large-capacity magazines let them have more bullets in the gun um, so they don't have to pause to reload. We know that that period where people pause to reload can be a time that victims can flee to safety. We saw that in the shooting um, that my boss experienced, that when the shooter was reloading, people fled to safety. So there is some good evidence that restricting the kinds of weapons that people have access to can reduce mass shootings and reduce gun violence generally. One study, for example, found that um, states that regulated large capacity magazines were 56% less likely to experience mass shootings. And Kelly, we have a caller on the line, if you don't mind uh, taking a call. And I should say that we're broadcasting live on August 29th. And the number to call in is 813-239-9663. You can also email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. And you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. And I'm Sean Canan. Our guest is Kelly Drain, Research Director with Giffords. And we have Art on the line in Lakeland. Hi, Art. Hi, how are you? Um, the question I have is, why can't we treat guns like we treat cars? Why can't we have a division of firearms like we have a division of motor vehicles? And you have to go there. You have to take a test. You know, you have to pay. You have to get, you know, in order to get a license. And then once you have your license, you know, you've had your background check and your license. Um you know, and then you treat it just like you would a, a car thing. You'd have to renew it every three or five years. And that way, every time you bought a gun, it would immediately be registered. You know, just like, you know, a car is registered. Um, and we have, what, thousands of veterans. Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. Um, and it's a really wonderful question because many states have actually enacted systems that are, are very similar to that, maybe not as extensive as what you're describing, but um, there are several states that have what we call licensing laws or permit to purchase laws that require people to get a license, to obtain safety training, um, to you know be fingerprinted before they can get a, per- a permit to own a gun um, or to purchase a gun. Um, and those laws are incredibly effective. I think one of my very favorite studies looked at um, Missouri repealed this law and Connecticut implemented this law and gun violence went way up in Missouri and way down in Connecticut. So it is a very effective kind of system um, that we can put in place to reduce violence. Well, thanks so much to Art for that call. And maybe to follow up on that, one other thing that you could use a car registration as a model is the fact that everyone is required to purchase car insurance. And there's been this discussion about whether uh, there should be ammunition insurance or gun insurance for people who have firearms to, because there's such a, a high risk and high liability potentially there that, that maybe they need to be insured and that the government needs to regulate that. Yeah, I think that's another really interesting policy solution. It's something that we haven't really seen states or localities implement, um, broadly speaking yet, but it definitely is an idea that, that potentially could be effective in produ- reducing gun violence. 
Well, let me go on with the other recommendations that were made in this How America's Gun Laws Fuel Armed Hate Report from Giffords. And this next one has to do with extreme risk protection order laws. What what does that even mean, extreme risk protection order laws? And how would that be, could, could that be a help in the solution for this problem? Yeah, so extreme risk laws are a really innovative policy solution. They're built on other firearm protection order laws that we have um, that have existed for a long time, but they operate a little bit differently. So the way that they work is that they allow law enforcement or in some states, um, family members and other key members of the community to petition the court for an order to remove firearms from people that are po- that um, are are demonstrated to pose an imminent risk of violence to themselves or others. So this is a determination that's made by a judge based on very, very strong evidence. Um, But it is something that we see as very effective. You know, Florida passed one of these laws in the wake of the Parkland shooting. Um, My understanding is that that shooter had been the subject of multiple tips to the FBI, had been in contact with law enforcement, but law enforcement did not feel that they had a legal mechanism to arrest or or, or otherwise um, reju- diminish this person's um, access to firearms. And so these kinds of laws, these extreme risk protection order laws actually do create that, that legal process to remove firearms when there are warning signs. And the reality is that before most mass shootings, um, there are number a number of warning signs that are observed by others and people are generally concerned about these individuals before they um, perpetrate their attacks. Kind of going off of that answer is this question that comes in from an email from Bubba, uh, text message that is, and he's it's he's kind of drawing the connection about to find out if, whether there's a connection between mental health and gun violence. Bubba writes, I found it interesting that the Jacksonville shooter's dad called 911 before the shooting and said that he was off his meds. And so Bubba says... Um, is there a connection then between mental illness and these mass shootings? Yeah, that's a really great question. So what the research has actually found is um, that there, it's better to look at sort of dangerous behaviors and dangerous warning signs rather than diagnoses of mental illness. Um, simply because the vast majority of people in our country that have mental illness will never be violent. Um, the, they're actually at increased risk of experiencing violence and victimization themselves. So, you know, we try really hard at Giffords to make sure that our laws are based on when individuals are displaying dangerous behaviors and less so when they have a particular diagnosis. Again, I keep pulling out the studies, but I'm a researcher, so I have to do that. But one study found that um, if we had a magic pill that could sort of cure all mental illness, um, we would only reduce violence by about 4% because that's sort of the percent that we can attribute to diagnosable mental illness. There was a researcher at Duke that I interviewed a few years ago uh, on a similar subject to this. And uh, the question of the conference that he was at was, is there a connection between mental illness and and gun violence? And he had a similar conclusion to what you said based on his research. And he found that the two main causes that would can predict whether there will be gun violence or not is one is a person, does a person have a violent background? Like if they've been arrested for a violent crime or two, do they have access to guns? Those are the two main criteria that can predict the amount of gun violence that that's uh, that's likely uh just i don't know if you're familiar with that study or if you have anything to add to that 
Yeah, I think that's totally right. You know, I think there was a really great study too that came out of the FBI just recently looking at active shooters. And, you know, it found that the the kinds of behaviors that preceded um these kinds of events were were things like, you know, people got divorced, they got laid off from their job, and it created these sort of crises. Um, so it was less about having a diagnosis of some mental illness, but but actually experiencing this big life stressor and having access to firearms. Our guest is Kelly Drain, the research director with Giffords, and we're talking about the connection between hate crimes and gun laws. And later on in the show, we'll hear more about Hurricane Adalia. We'll get the latest forecast. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting live from the studios of WMNF Tampa on August 29th. And we're talking about some policy changes that could could impact and could reduce gun violence, especially gun violence that's attached to hate crimes. And one of the other conclusions that your report finds is that laws that prohibit guns on government property and at civic events like protests, demonstrations, or meetings of legislative bodies would protect from, from these uh, hate-fueled gun violence crimes. How would that work? Yeah, so, you know, there are many types of laws that restrict access to guns in certain sensitive places. You know, there's there are laws that prevent people from bringing guns to schools. Um, some states have passed other kinds of what we call sensitive place sensitive place restrictions. Um, and I think these laws are particularly important because everyone in this country needs to feel um, that they can participate in civic events. Everyone needs to feel safe when they go to vote. Everyone should be emboldened to go and protest and demonstrate um, to hold um celebration, cultural celebrations, pride parades, et cetera. Um, and so it's really important that we have laws that can prevent guns from being introduced into those spaces where there is um, public debate and discussion perhaps, or um, where vulnerable groups are represented. Um, so these laws are really critical. And again, I think it's it's not just critical to preventing gun violence, but I would also argue that it's critical to pre- preserving and protecting our democracy. If people don't feel comfortable um, and safe participating in our democracy, I think we have um, a really big problem um, that that not not just a problem of safety, but a problem of our democracy. And the final uh, policy suggestion that you make is that hate crime offenders should be disarmed. What is what does that entail? How would that work and why would that be effective? Yeah, so you know, right now, if you are convicted of a misdemeanor hate crime, um, that you would not be prohibited from um, having firearms in most states in this country. Um, we know that people that commit hate crimes are at elevated risk of committing future violence, um, that that sort of, like we were talking about related to mental illness, that that behavior of committing violence motivated by hate is a significant risk factor for perpetrating future violence. And so these laws would add um, you know, another category of eligibility that people um, who have been convicted of these kinds of crimes would not be allowed to um, to purchase or possess firearms. So we've been talking about your your uh, report and about how connections between hate crimes and gun violence. So is there anything else that we haven't covered in this conversation that you'd like to let our listeners know about before I let you go? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we saw in in Jacksonville, um, we have seen too many times where there is anti-Black gun violence, um, anti-Jewish gun violence. And, um, you know, this is really a product of our lax gun laws um, that really allow people that are filled with hate to carry out horrific acts of violence. And I think it's really important that people understand that these are preventable. Um, There are policies we can put in place to reduce the frequency and lethality of these events. And we don't have to live in a society where this is happening with such frequency. If people want to find out more about Giffords, where can they go or to read this report? Yeah, our report is available on Giffords.org, G-I-F-F-O-R-D-S.org. Well, thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Cafe, Kelly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Kelly Drain is a research director at Giffords, and we've been talking about the connection between hate crimes and gun laws. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. I'm broadcasting from WMNF Live on August 29, 2023. And we turn now to our next topic, which is Hurricane Idalia. It will impact our area tonight and tomorrow. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by a meteorologist live to get the latest update. But right now, let's hear an update that Governor Ron DeSantis gave within the last hour about Hurricane Adalia. I can tell you that it formed into a hurricane this morning. It's expected to make landfall along Florida's Big Bend, north of the Tampa Bay area tomorrow as a major hurricane, a Category 3 And as of the 8 o'clock forecast track this morning, Adalia is expected to be due west of Pinellas County as a Category 3 hurricane with 120-mile-an-hour winds at 2 this morning. So we'll start feeling impacts several hours before that, mostly wind and surge at first, but we'll uh, also get a lot of rain uh, as the bands go through as well. But let's right now listen to a few minutes of Governor Ron DeSantis speaking about an hour ago. As of 8 a.m. this morning, uh, Hurricane Idalia is located approximately 130 miles south of the Dry Tortugas with winds in excess of 80 miles per hour. It is officially a hurricane. The storm is forecast to make landfall on Florida's Big Bend tomorrow morning as a major hurricane. The National Hurricane Center has issued a hurricane warning for the Gulf Coast from Sarasota County up through Franklin County and the Panhandle and storm surge watches are also in effect in those areas. Uh, The National Hurricane Center advisory includes that if this storm hits at high tide, storm surge could reach 8 to 12 feet in some areas. And so that would be a life-threatening storm surge. I know all those areas are are under uh, evacuation notices in the low-lying and coastal areas. Uh, You run from the water and you hide from the wind. Uh, If you're there in that storm surge, uh, you're putting your life uh, in jeopardy when it gets to be uh, that that high. So if you are giving those orders, uh, please heed those orders. You do not have to leave the state. You don't have to drive hundreds of miles. You have to get to higher ground and a safe structure. Uh, you can ride the storm out there, then go back to your home uh, once the storm passes. There are evacuation orders for coastal and low-lying areas in 22 uh, different counties along the Gulf Coast, uh, as well as throughout North Florida. To make these evacuations easier on families, uh, we have directed FDOT to waive tolls in Citrus, Hernando, Hillsborough Lake, Pasco, Pinellas, and Sumter counties, and that started at 0400 this morning. Uh, for those evacuating, Visit Florida has activated the emergency accommodation module with Expedia. So if you want to find a hotel, you can go to Expedia.com Florida. 
We are coordinating, continue to coordinate with the power companies across the state. Uh, we had, as of this morning, over 25,000 linemen stationed more on the way. Uh, so you will have um, most likely between 30 and 40,000 linemen when the storm hits will be in the state of Florida. And then they will immediately move to uh, commence power restoration efforts. Uh, we've also been working with counties to make sure that they know uh, that we have resources ready to deploy and we want to be helpful to support uh, their efforts. So we have received more than 450 active missions that we are coordinating. Every resource request we've received has either been filled or will be filled uh, by the end of this morning. We do have 420,000 gallons of fuel staged and ready to deploy, and additional assets are expected over the next few days, and the gas stations that will be prioritized will be the ones along the, the heavy evacuation routes. Uh, we have eight urban search and rescue teams activated and over 580 search and rescue personnel uh, ready right now. We have delivered 431 pallets of water, uh, 303 pallets of MREs, and over 1,200 tarps to communities that may be impacted. We've got many more gallons of water and a lot of MREs that are ready to be deployed as needed. Uh, there are over 20 shelters open, um, and additional 20 special needs shelters are mobilizing or on standby throughout uh, the state of Florida. We have 5,500 National Guardsmen that have been activated. Uh, we have deployed 247 Starlinks with another 529 stage in Central Florida, and they will be deployed to impacted areas as the needs uh, arise. 42 school districts have announced school closures over the next two days, along with 16 state colleges and seven Florida universities. Our Florida Department of Transportation has more than 600 personnel, including over 220 cut and toss crew members with more than 400 pieces of heavy equipment and trucks strategically placed across the state to prepare for cut and toss operations post storm. And if you look at that track of where it's going now, uh, you are going to see a lot of debris. Uh, there's a lot of trees along that track and it is gonna knock down trees, it's gonna knock down power lines and there's gonna be a, a need to be able to clear uh, a lot of the, the, the right of ways. Uh, Florida Department of Transportation has about 1,100 generators en route to impacted areas, and they're going to use that to get the traffic signals up and running as soon as possible when the storm passes. Uh, as wind becomes stronger later today and into the night, FDOT will be coordinating with FHP and local law enforcement to close bridges once the speeds reach in excess of 40 miles an hour. Uh, road rangers will be concentrated along evacuation routes to help motorists. Uh, we have also called up 33 ambulance strike teams with over 200 ambulances that are ready to surge into any impacted area. We've also request, requested uh, an additional six strike teams through our emergency management assistance compact uh, with other states. So this storm is, is, is going to hit uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, you will start certainly seeing effects of this in different parts of the state. Uh, later on today. Uh, you still have time this morning to be able to make your final preparations. Uh, if you are in one of those areas that's in line for some of the major storm surge and you're told to evacuate, you know, you have time to do that. Uh, but you got you to do that now. You don't have to go hundreds of miles. You can go to a shelter in a different part of your county, go to a friend's house in an area that is not going to be susceptible to the storm surge. Hotel, all these things uh, are, are, are good to do. 
uh, and you should do that and heed. Uh, this is going to be a major hurricane, uh, likely a Category 3, and it's where it's uh, scheduled to hit along this big bend, and we've not really had a hurricane strike this area uh, for a long, long time. I think you've got to go back to the 1800s before you would see a path uh, like this. And so, so those coastal areas there, you know, have not necessarily been through this before. And I think that, that, uh, that being safe is, is the appropriate thing and, and erring on the side of caution is the appropriate thing. I just want to pause this for a second to remind you that you're listening to Governor Ron DeSantis. This was a press conference he gave last hour about the updates from Hurricane Idalia, and you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa, and in just a few minutes, we're going to bring on a meteorologist from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network to talk about Hurricane Idalia, to talk about the latest forecast and about what you need to know in this area. Just a reminder that the Tampa Bay area is under a hurricane warning and a storm surge warning. A surge of up to f- of four to seven feet is anticipated in Pinellas, Hillsboro, parts of Manatee, and in uh, Pasco counties. It's even more north of that. So please know where you are and how far the surge sh- is expected to come up. Very, that's a very high, strong s- storm surge. Coastal Tampa Bay area counties have issued mandatory evacuation orders for Zone A. So that often includes low-lying coastal areas, and it also includes mobile homes in most cases. You can find out your evacuation zone on WMNF.org, or you can go to the state website, Know Your Zone. Expect heavy rain over the next two days and a chance of tornadoes. Let's go back to hear a little bit more of this press conference from Governor Ron DeSantis, and we will hear uh, from... Megan Borowski, who is a Florida Public Radio Emergency Network meteorologist in just a few minutes. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. Uh, We will, of course, be mindful of any changes in the path of this storm. I think everybody on that Gulf Coast from Tampa Bay up until Northwest Florida uh, must remain vigilant. They have nudged the track a little bit further west over the last uh, 24 hours. I mean, we were looking at potentially um, uh, a Levy County, I think yesterday at today. Now we're looking more uh, at a Taylor County. Uh, there's some models that say it may go even even further west. So, so places like Tallahassee, where we are today, certainly uh, you could end up having it uh, hit Tallahassee directly in some of the surrounding areas. So, so everyone just remain vigilant, continue to watch uh, and listen to the local orders uh, that you receive from your local emergency management personnel. I want to thank everybody. Uh, you know, we've been in contact with you know, people from, from most of these, these counties over the last few days. Everybody's working hard. Everybody understands that, um, that this is a significant event. And uh, you know they're remaining uh, calm, and cool, and collected, but they're they're executing, and that's what we need to to continue to do. I want to thank everybody here at the state of Florida for for working hard. They've been working uh, now around the clock and and getting the get, getting the resources where they need to be as those requests come in. And of course, once the storm passes, we're going to immediately go uh, to to commence any type of rescue operations, and and of course, the power restoration will be a, a big big a big priority. Go to Florida Disaster org slash get a plan uh, if you have any questions again you still have uh, some time uh, this morning 
and into the early afternoon. But as we get throughout this day, uh, you are going to start to see uh, uh, rain and wind pick up, particularly the further south you are in the state of Florida. And by the time, um, you know, we get to the end of tonight, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to see some nasty weather. So so just be 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 warned about that and, and do what you need to do right now. Uh, to be able to keep yourself and your family safe. Okay, we're going to hear from Kevin Guthrie, uh, Division of Emergency Management. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Governor, again for your continued support and leadership. As of this morning, Adelia was upgraded to a Category 1 hurricane and is expected to continue to strengthen as it makes its way through the Gulf of Mexico. The storm is going to be here very soon. By this time tomorrow morning, we will pretty much lock down the EOC and we will be uh, working through those issues. The state is working overtime to fulfill requests made by counties in the path of the storm. Uh, to date, we have filled 400, or we are actively working 461 missions. We have closed 72 missions for a total of 552 missions. Counties, please continue to send in your resource request so that we can take advantage of the time we have left. We're going to have about another 18 hours, 16, 18 hours or so that we can move commodities. After that, we will not be able to do that any longer. We're doing everything we can, ensure, we can to ensure that communities have the necessary resources they need. But you as a household owner, you need to take action now. You need to get you and your family, businesses, you need to get your employees ready now. The time is now. I implore you to finalize your disaster preparedness actions right now. I want to stress again, even if your community is not in the forecast cone, it does not mean you're in the clear. I'm going to use a graphic to my left. If you're in red on this graphic, you're underneath a hurricane or tropical storm warning, or you're underneath a surge warning. If you're in pink, you're under a watch. That is well outside that cone. So again, people are going to experience issues with this from trees down, power being shut down, heavy rains are on the east side of this storm. It's going to be a very fast-moving storm, but please, if you're in the red, don't focus on that cone. Focus on if you're in the red, you need to take some type of protective action, and you need to do that now. If you decide to shelter in place, identify a safe place in your home, away from windows where you can shelter safely. The same thing applies to the very first thing that we're going to experience most likely in Florida, which is a tornado. If you find yourself in a tornado watch or warning, please get yourself to an interior room free of windows, put a mattress over your head. Even if you have some type of bicycle helmet or something like that, you need to protect your head from tornadic activity. If you're evacuating, do not leave your pets behind. Make sure you have leashes, carriers, plenty of food and water for them. Evacuations can be stressful on the whole family, so please pack comfort items for your kids, like their favorite toys, games, or snacks. Make sure that if you, before you leave your home or if you're sheltering in place, if you can pick it up, put it up. If you cannot pick it up, tie it down. Minimize the amount of items that can uh, be picked up and uh, overturned in, in your neighborhood. Whatever you decide is the best for yourself and your family, again, the action is now. You must do it now. If you're unsure about the next steps of what to do, please contact your local emergency management office. We have also launched the State Assistance Information Line, or in true emergency management vein, we have plenty of acronyms, So, or the SAIL line. You can contact them at 1-800-342-3557. Again, that's 
800-300-3557. That's the state assistance information line, and they can uh, take any requests that you have. We have operators standing by now, and that is a 24-7 hotline. They will help you out with how to prepare before, during, and after a hurricane, road closures, alternate routes, available open shelters in host and impacted counties, shelters designed for medically dependent individuals, and reentry information. All of that is available at that number. You can also, of course, get up-to-date information by visiting our emergency information site at floridadisaster.org slash updates and following us on social media at FLSCRT or at FLCERT. We also uh, just launched yesterday a new guide for newcomers to Florida and visitors to Florida. That is available at floridadisaster.org slash guide, floridadisaster.org slash guide. I will talk very quickly about uh, an operational component that we're going to experience in this particular disaster, and that is this storm is going to move through during the day tomorrow, and then we're going to be at a point where we might be able to start operating towards sunset but we're going to be operating in areas that are without power. These are going to be very, very delicate tactical operations. They may be done from the river. They may be done from creeks. They may be done from helicopters. So, again, it's not something we like to do, which is operate in a dark environment with power lines entangled in trees. But, again, we understand that people are probably going to call 911 and need some assistance. So we, along with counties across the, uh, the uh, area, are working with FWC, the Florida National Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard on how we're going to best be able to help those persons in need. So uh, we're working through all that today, and then we'll get uh, in our later press briefing today as well as in tomorrow, we'll start talking more about recovery efforts. Again, Governor, thank you so much for your time, your leadership, and support. Well, that was Kevin Guthrie, who is the state's Division of Emergency Management leader. And before him, we heard Governor Ron DeSantis. They were both speaking last hour during an update about Hurricane Idalia. Again, Hurricane Idalia formed into a hurricane this morning. It's expected to make landfall along Florida's Big Bend, north of the Tampa Bay area tomorrow as a Category 3 major hurricane. And it is going to be affecting the Tampa Bay area beginning tomorrow, tonight, that is. And about 2 tomorrow morning, it'll be due west of Tampa Bay. Uh, it'll be a Category 3 hurricane. It's anticipated to be that already by t- 2 a.m. Uh, tomorrow morning with 120-mile-an-hour winds. But it will be offshore, so we'll be getting some tropical form, tropical storm force winds. But we are not anticipating in, in the Tampa Bay area, at least, to get hurricane force winds if the track holds the way it has been predicting. The Tampa Bay area is under a hurricane warning and a storm surge warning. So that's important. If you live near the coast, please be aware that a surge of four to seven feet is anticipated. I'll be asking my my next guest about this because right around two in the morning is when the next high tide is after this afternoon. And so uh, that combination of a, a, a the king tides and the uh, the four to seven foot storm surge could be is it could be deadly storm surge if you live along the coast. For that reason, coastal Tampa Bay area counties have issued mandatory evacuation orders for Zone A. You can find your evacuation zone on WMNF.org. Expect heavy rain over the next two days and a chance of tornadoes. Also, uh, I should tell you that the tolls were waived on highways in the Tampa Bay area and in the Big Bend. So if you're going over the Sunshine Skyway or uh, on the Selman Expressway or in the Florida Turnpike, those are toll-free for now, probably for the rest of this week at least. 
Tampa International Airport is closed. St. Pete Clearwater International Airport will close today at 3. And uh, we are bringing you an update about Hurricane Adalia from WMNF Tampa. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. And we are joined now on by Zoom by Megan Borowski. And I want to welcome you to the, back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Megan. Thanks, Sean, for having me. I'm really glad that you could join us. Uh, let's start with what we know about the strength and track of Hurricane Idalia and how the Tampa Bay area fits in. Right. So um, Idalia became a hurricane this morning, five o'clock this morning. Uh, it was declared strong enough to be classified a hurricane, still a category one. It's got winds now up to about 80 miles an hour. Pressure has dropped to 977 millibars. It's moving northward at about 15 miles an hour. And we can st- continue to see signs of strengthening. We're actually waiting for the 11 o'clock update to come in. And it might come in while we're while we're on the air here talking. Um, but throughout the rest of the day today, we are expecting this storm to intensify, continue getting stronger, those winds getting faster. Um, in terms of the Tampa Bay area, Idalia will likely almost parallel the coast through much of the day today. Um, we're looking at the onset of tropical storm force winds sometime um, tonight into tomorrow morning. Uh, that's the latest forecast from the NHC. It looks like the most likely time of arrival actually is, is sometime tonight, again, from south to north. So Sarasota will start feeling those wind gusts before Tampa, St. Pete. Um, and then those winds will continue moving northward. So we've got that. We do have the potential for those outer bands to start wrapping ashore. Uh, models are, are a little bit wobbly in terms of time timing of, of that, but it, it looks like uh, showers, thunderstorms, heavier rainfall rates sometime tonight after sunset is when we could get those first outer bands wrapping inland. And the issue there is we can have a risk for tornadoes from those outer bands and because they're going to be arriving at night. That adds an extra element of, of danger to it because we're going to be going to sleep. It's dark out. We're not really paying attention as much. So I, I urge you as you do wind down for the evening tonight, make sure you have alerts um, on on your cell phone so you can take appropriate shelter if a tornado warning is issued um, for the Tampa St. Pete area. But uh, Edalia should continue moving northward. We're actually expecting landfall over the Big Bend, Forgotten Coast, uh, Apalachicola, anywhere to, to St. Mark's, and then down to Stenhatchee, Cedar Key, anywhere in that area uh, tomorrow morning, shortly after sunrise. And it's at that point, Idalia could actually be a major hurricane. We're looking at Category 3 strength right now from the latest model data. Um, so anywhere between 111 and 129 miles an hour is that Category 3. But um, you know, thankfully here in Tampa, it doesn't look like we're going to be dealing with a landfall. But on the back edge of that center of circulation, we're going to have winds from the west pushing onshore. And that gives us the risk for storm surge flooding um, in the Tampa St. Pete area. And I think the the latest, latest forecast, they haven't changed all that much, but it looks like four to seven feet um, for the immediate Gulf Coast and then also for, for Tampa Bay itself four to seven feet of storm surge and inundation in the forecast. Uh, so lots of different hazards arriving at, lot, uh, at several different times. Um, but I think the main takeaway as the situation unfolds over the next 24 to 36 hours is to keep posted to the latest forecast, the latest now casting, so you can keep your family safe and really kind of in this evolving situation. Our guest is Megan Borowski, a meteorologist with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. And we're talking about Hurricane Idalia. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. 
And we're live here on August 29th and a listener wrote in with a question that I think uh, I'd like to hear your answer uh, for Megan. Um, he, he, he writes, David writes, why does the National Hurricane Center wait to give warnings on the true intensity of a storm? And he says, I think it was pretty obvious from the extraordinary warmth of the Gulf that the storm would be very strong, but the fact that it would be a Cat 3 wasn't officially announced until a, until a day or two ago. Um, why not warn about the presumed intensity several days out. So that's actually one question. His other question is decent too. So I want, I'll ask you that as well. He's mm -hmm. wondering if we've ever seen a hurricane with such high confidence across almost all of the computer models. And he said, is it doesn't look like spaghetti models. It looks like uncooked spaghetti in the box. So what about and those one, questions? Yeah, a big club. That's, that's a good analogy. Um, for the NHC, um, you know, there's um, almost protocol in terms of watches and warnings and when those are issued. So you, you have, uh, I believe, watches are issued, um, I believe it's 48 hours in advance and warnings are 36 hours in advance. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure of the actual timing. I, I believe those are the, the two hour points though, but that's that's for watch and warning issuance. So people have enough time. And, and then in terms of talking about categories and, and strength in forecast discussions, um, you know, there's we we have been um, talking about some models spitting out rapid intensification and some some you know on the higher end of of the strength of the Saffir-Simpson scale and other models have have pumped out. No, this is going to be category one at landfall. So it's it's taking in all of that information, weighting the um, validity of each model or, or you know how each model performs under each different scenario. There's a lot of things that kind of fuel weather forecasting. Yes, it's the model output, but then it's, you know, are there events similar in the past where we saw, you know, pre-existing conditions like what's occurring now and can we kind of compare and, and use that to help predict? And then on, on also, um, you know, if you get one model run that predicts a, a cat four or a cat three, but you have a couple other model runs that predict cat one, well, how do you weight those? And um, there's the social science behind it as well as, you know, do I ring the alarm bells if just one model runs said cat three? Um, so it's, it's a very complicated situation. The closer in time we get to landfall, um, the confidence we can put in our forecast. And also, you know, a couple of days ago, we didn't even have a closed center of circulation with this system. So that's the other thing, too, of, of we can't make calls on intensity for a storm that really hasn't even developed yet. Um, we can have the discussions out there, but you've really got to be careful once you put out that official forecast of, of um, you know, cat, cat three or, or, or something along along those lines. Overall, the main goal of forecasting is to keep people safe, give people plenty of time to, to make um, those judgment calls and, and make their preparations, but at the same time, not cause unnecessary panic or concern. It's a, it's a juggling act. It's difficult. Let's talk a little bit more about storm surge. You were mentioning that on, on one side or the other of this hurricane is when the prevailing winds might be pushing water toward the coast, which would increase the amount of surge. Also, overnight tonight, there's a high tide. How do all these factors play in and when should Pinellas, Manatee County, uh, Pasco County, Hillsborough County, when should we uh, be most concerned about the storm surge overnight? Well, it's all going to depend on uh, where the center of this system is, um, you know, tonight at, at high tide times. Um, 
because when in the instance of, of this particular storm, we have the center is going to stay pretty much offshore and it's going to be moving northward. So for a time, we're going to have winds offshore and that should be pulling, um, pulling the water away from the coast. Now, of course, that's that's just a general description. The, the shoreline is, is much more complicated than that. But generally, as the center of the storm, um, you know, as we have those offshore winds, we won't have that storm surge inundation. We have a strengthening storm, so those winds are sucking all that water out. And then once the center of the storm moves to our north and to our northwest, we're going to get those onshore winds on the back edge of it. All that water that was sucked out is going to get bulldozed back in. Um, so it looks like the next high tide for Tampa Bay area um, is going to be at about 1.30 this afternoon, or the next high tide, rather. And then... Um, four o'clock in the morning tomorrow. So four o'clock in the morning tomorrow, the center should be to, to our north. And that's when um, we'll have those onshore winds. So really overnight tonight into tomorrow as the tide starts coming in and we get those winds from the west, that's when we really need to be on the lookout for um, for water levels to, to really rise. And again, the, the official forecast for Tampa Bay and the St. Pete coast um, is about four And that's why there's been some mandatory evacuations ordered for zone A near the coast because four to seven feet, I mean, that's a lot higher than a lot of the land that's right near our coasts. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, (laughs) I think a common misconception or a common assumption um, with with hurricanes and tropical systems, everybody focuses on the wind, but the biggest killer is water. Um, so, so take these evacuation notices seriously. Um, this, this swiftly moving water, this storm surge flooding, it comes in relatively quickly. Um, you know, it can sweep cars away. So what it can do to humans, it'll sweep you away. And, and uh, it's, it's not a good situation. Evacuate if you're told to do so. That is something that, that I can't stress enough. Our guest is Megan Borowski, a meteorologist with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. I'm Sean Canan, and we're talking about Hurricane Idalia on Tuesday Cafe. And we haven't talked yet about the um, whether there's links between this hurricane or other hurricanes and human-fueled climate change. What can you tell us about that? So right now, you know, we haven't gone through any rapid intensification or, or anything like that yet. Um, it's still a Category 1 storm. Um, you know, we've got El Nino that, that's ramping up that could detract from tropical development. I, I'm listing all of these things because when you're looking at climate, you've got to look at the amalgamation of, of a long period of time, a year's worth of weather, and then analyze the trends. So, you know, as we go back and we look at the frequency of events and how quickly storms spun up, then we can really make the, the comment on, on climate. Um, what I would say right now is um, we can have all of those conversations after this event is over. Um, we can really look into the data. Once we have all the data post-event, uh, right now, focus on on getting those preparations in and, and getting yourself safe. Let's talk about those preparations. It's it's a little late now, but it's still there is still time before the storm really impacts us that people could, especially, um, you know, people could be getting their emergency kits together here at the last minute. So what kinds of things would you recommend people have in their emergency kit? You know, the basics, comfortable clothing, uh, shoes, you know, closed-toed shoes, sturdy shoes that are, that are waterproof. Um, you're going to want to have a gallon of water per person per day for anywhere of three to five days. 
Um, non-perishable or shelf-stable foods. If you have it in cans, make sure you have a can opener. I can't stress that enough either. Um, cash, make sure your car is fueled up. Prescriptions, uh, if the pharmacy is closed, because we're not we're not only preparing for the storm itself, we're also preparing for any power outages and, and lasting impacts post-storm. Um, so just food, water, uh, prescriptions, any of those necessary items, and you know, you each know for your families what you need to get by day to day. What are the basics? Um, health, uh, health and hygiene items. You know, hand sanitizer or, or wipes, disinfecting wipes, especially in the advent of the COVID era, as I like to call it. Um, and then, in terms of maybe a few supplies for your house, tarps, um, something to secure tarps down with, flashlights, batteries. Um, those are all the, the main essential items. And if you do have pets, because I've got one myself, uh, food and water for them too. We've been hearing a lot about generator safety. So maybe can you remind people if there is a power outage, if you do have a generator and then you end up using it, how do, what are the best tips for keeping yourself and your family safe if you have to use a generator? Well, operate it in an, an open, a, a well-ventilated area. Please don't operate it in, in the vicinity of a garage or no ventilation because the exhaust fumes are, um, you know, potent and lethal um, if you if you inhale them um, for, you know, if you're exposed to them for a long amount of time. Um, keep it in a an area outside away from other items. Uh, make sure you're storing the the gasoline and the fuel for that properly as well. Again, you don't want to be um, handling gasoline. You, you guys all know that the safety for those those sorts of things. Um, and monitor it. Don't just don't run it and, and leave it alone. Keep checking on it. Um, you know, in the post storm situation, you can still have debris around, debris smashing into it. Um, so just check on it and make sure it's it's running properly and it's in a safe zone and it, it's not causing any additional problems because, you know, this is likely not to be the situation in Tampa where first responders won't be able to reach you in a timely ma manner, uh, but that's really depending on the amount of storm surge flooding. But there is the potential there that, um, you know, you, you are left to defend for yourself of you are your own first responder at, at some points. So um, keep that in mind, practice safe practices, um, and, you know, I guess that's all I have to say on, on generators and the emergency response. Here in the Tampa Bay area, likely the first big impacts that we'll be having from Hurricane Adalia later this afternoon will be when the storm bands from the hurricane pass through yeah. our area. And so tell us about the types of storms that we might expect, th thunderstorms, but also the chance of tornadoes. Right. So uh, these outer bands, it's almost like, you know, when we have those squall lines of thunderstorms coming on through, they they set up, they can, um, you know, it is a squall line of thunderstorm activity. And due to the rotation of the actual hurricane itself, these little storm cells could get rotation. And that gives us the chance for uh, damaging wind gusts and also for quick tornado spin-ups. Now, generally with a hurricane, um, they trend to be weaker tornadoes, but you can get stronger tornadoes out of these outer bands as well. So anywhere from Sarasota, really the entire Tampa St. Pete area, even as far inland as Lakeland and then northward along and west of the I-75 corridor, we've got a chance for a few tornadoes uh, really later on tonight as those outer bands start arriving. And then throughout the day tomorrow, they'll continue to wrap on shore as uh, Idalia moves northward and makes landfall with the Big Bend.
Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Cafe, Megan. No problem. Stay safe, everybody. All right. Thanks, you too. Megan Borowski is a meteorologist with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network, and we've been talking about the approaching Hurricane Idalia. Please keep yourself safe and be informed. Our website, WMNF.org, has information. Your county's emergency management has information. The state does as well. I want to thank our guest earlier in the hour, Kelly Drain with Giffords, the research director there, talking about the connection between hate crimes and gun laws. And if you missed any part of these interviews, you can watch them on our website, WMNF.org, beginning this afternoon. I want to thank our phone screener, Greg Bowers. You have been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, News and Public Affairs Director at WMNF Tampa. During this time slot tomorrow, we'll hear Midpoint, hosted by Shelley Reback. Coming up next is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. They'll talk about the challenges of teaching African-American history in Florida. This is WMNF Tampa.